Well, this summer, over the next few weeks, we are spending some time in Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is, is famously known as, as the Hall of Fame, or the Hall of Faith. It's full of names that maybe you recognize, people that maybe you've heard incredible stories about, giants of the faith. Um, but our series is called Hall of Flaw. And that's because, as we're going to learn over the next few weeks, these were not a bunch of perfect people. In fact, they were, in a lot of cases, from some pretty messed up places. And as I was thinking about uh, Hebrews 11 and, uh, you know, how, how it might re best relate to us, uh, one of the things our family has been doing, and you'll forgive me because we're about 14 years too late, 13 years, is we've been watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Um, are you guys, am I, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, Avengers, Iron Man, all the, all the movies, right? Again, super late, just forgive me, right? We are not early adopters, clearly. But um, it occurred to me that maybe Hebrews 11 is a bit like the Avengers. And I think we love the Avengers. If you don't know the, this, this story, the MCU was started in the 1960s by a guy named Stan Lee, and then the Disney machine got a hold of it sometime in the early 2000s, and now we have this incredible library of movies that tells the story of these people who have, in a lot of cases, really tough pasts, but then they, they come together to save the world. They're heroes. They're doing tremendous things. And we love them. Their story envelops us, and we get involved, and all of a sudden there's fandoms and uh, whole sections at theme parks that people line up for for hours and hours, and we're bought in. And I wonder if the best example of, of why we love the Avengers isn't found in Tony Stark. Tony Stark is Iron Man, and when you first encounter Tony Stark in the movies, um, he is not super likable. Maybe you weren't, Maybe I'm alone in this, but man, I did not like Tony Stark when I first watched the first Iron Man. He is not a good guy. He's sort of a philanderer. He, he's pretty full of himself. I think this picture kind of sums him up. He just kind of feels like he is the center of the universe. But by the end of this chapter in the, Avenger, in the, in the Marvel Universe, Tony Stark and I'm, again, spoiler alert, because I watch the movies with my eye, one eye on the screen, the other eye on Wikipedia on my phone, so I'm making sure I'm getting all the things. But Tony Stark becomes the one, the, the linchpin in saving the whole story. He is the hero of the heroes. And what I think, I think we love Tony Stark, not just because he does cool things, but we love Tony Stark because we know how far Tony Stark came. We know where he started. We know how messed up he was. And we know the complete 180 he did by the end of the story. And that formula is what we're going to find in Hebrews 11. It's people who started out in a very tough place. It's an imperfect bunch of heroes. But what makes them heroes is how God worked through their faith how they were used by the Lord in spite of their scars and their societal positions and their mistakes. So I'm not going to suggest to you that Stan Lee read Hebrews 11 before he wrote the MCU, but maybe. <laughs> I, 
All right, well, today we are going to spend some time uh, in Hebrews 11. So I'm going to, if you have your Bible with you or if you have your mobile device with you that you have an electronic version of the Bible, I'd love it if you would take um, one finger and hold Hebrews and then take another one and hold Joshua chapter 2. Maybe open up that second browser tab. But I, I'd encourage you today to read it for yourself as we're, we're really going to get deep into Joshua 2 today. Uh, we are going to be talking about Rahab this morning. And as we look at this hall of heroes in Hebrews 11, we encounter Rahab in Hebrews 11.31, which tells us this. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Check out her identifier there. She's the only one in the entire chapter listed by a descriptive word. She's not just Rahab, she's the prostitute Rahab. And this isn't even the only time in the New Testament that Rahab's mentioned with this descriptor. We find her again in James 2.25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Before we get into Joshua 2, let's take a look at Rahab's history. Because I want to suggest to you that as we encounter Rahab in Joshua 2, she's got three strikes against her. First of all, Rahab was a woman. And in this ancient culture, a woman, especially an unmarried woman, was seen as less than. Someone who didn't have the full rights that a man would have experienced at this particular point in time. Um, so she was fighting an uphill battle based on her gender alone because of what culture told her. Note that I didn't say that God saw her as less than, but that, friends, is a sermon for another day. <laughs> Rahab was a woman. Rahab was a prostitute. We clearly already know about her vocation. Now, it is likely that this is not something that she chose. But as an unmarried woman there would have been very few ways available for Rahab to secure her position, to literally stay alive outside of this particular profession. So she's a woman, she's a prostitute. Rahab was also a Canaanite. And the Canaanite people were not good neighbors. Culturally, they were known for sexual impropriety, divination, and they were particularly known for child sacrifice. Uh, chiefly, however, um, on their list of, of dark, tough things was um, a lot of idolatry. It was a polytheistic culture. And these people were so wicked that God had decided that the Israelites couldn't even live next to them. And at this point in history, the Israelites are pretty set on there being absolutely nothing worth redeeming in this Canaanite culture. I don't even know that we have anything to compare it to today. It's a very dark, wicked place. So for all intents and purposes here, Rahab is on the extreme margins. She's living a sinful lifestyle. She has a lower cultural position as a woman, and she belongs to a tribe of people who at the time were considered not, not even worthy of being saved. She is the furthest Thing from a hero. She is disqualified from anything 
right, from being anything beyond what society is telling her that she is. She doesn't see a future beyond being a prostitute. She doesn't see anything, anything, there's nothing about what this time that was telling her that would suggest that there's anything beyond her current state. So as we move into our story, into Joshua 2, we're just four chapters ahead of Joshua leading the Israelites to march around the city of Jericho and the walls coming down. Joshua begins, the second chapter begins with Joshua himself sending two spies into Jericho. He's, he's sending them there to try to assess the situation, right, and sort of get the scoop of, of what's going on, what, what are people saying, what's, you know, what's the general feel, and um, so we find, we encounter these spies sent by Joshua heading into the city and landing at Rahab's house. So we know that she lived on the margins, not only figuratively, but also physically. Her home was located in the wall of the city, and um, scholars believe that a lot of times there, there are two walls, and sometimes there was a, people would build a home in between the, the two walls, the inner wall and the outer wall of the city. So it's likely that um, we know that she lived in the wall of the city, so it's likely that that's, she was literally on the margin of the city. So this was a, a super easy place for spies to go uh, because of its location, but also, let's be frank, a prostitute's house, especially in this culture, would have been a very easy place for men to hide. So by verse 2, we see that the spies have already been discovered. So I don't know if these guys just like weren't good at their job or if the Canaanite people were just on such red alert that they knew the moment that someone that was not a Canaanite entered their city. So regardless, they were found out pretty quickly. So let's pick up here uh, with verse 2 of Joshua 2. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So very quickly we see that Rahab has made an interesting choice. She tells a lie to the king and his representatives, and she hides the, these Israelite spies up on her roof. I don't want you to miss how monumental this choice is for Rahab, because the laws and the code of the day would have dictated that any innkeeper or tavern keeper who chose to harbor fugitives would have put, been put to instant death. So she immediately knows that by doing what she did, she's putting her life at risk. She also made a shrewd choice by putting these spies up on her roof underneath these pieces of flax. Flax at that time was used to make linen, and part of that process was that they would lay the flax into stagnant water and then let it dry out in the open. So if you can imagine, this was not a pleasant scent, as this flax had been laying in water for a long time and then just left out. Um, if you've ever left a load of wash in the, lawn, in the 
like laundry in the wash for too long. You might know what I'm talking about. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's, that smell magnified is what uh, would have been ex- they would have been experiencing. So Rahab knows that the king's representatives would have, be, would have been unwilling to dig through the stench of flax and look for these spies. So she's shrewd, right? She's smart. She knows what she's doing. She, she knows that she's hiding in a place that they're very unlikely to be found. And she covers herself by telling a lie. Now, there's much ado among a lot of very smart people about whether this lie is a sin and should she have told the lie and was it right or was it wrong. I I don't want to get into that today. What I think is important for us to remember here is that Rahab's lie sets up the rest of the story. Right? Like, because Rahab told this lie, we see that these spies are about to escape, and God's plan moves forward. So as Rahab, after, after this encounter with the Canaanite men, um, ends, we're going to hear from Rahab again. And th- what else is interesting here is that um, what she, this section of scripture where she's about to speak is actually one of the longest uninter- uninterrupted statements by a female in the entire Bible. So verse 7. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Before we dive into what she said there, check out the difference between how she responded to the Canaanite representatives and the Israelite spies, because back in that first section of scripture in verses two through six, twice, she says, I don't, I don't know where they came from. I don't know where they're going. But then, when it comes time to address these spies on her roof, and if you can put on your imaginative hat with me for just a second, I just see her bursting with these words that her heart is pounding, that she runs up to the roof, and what does she say? I know, I know the Lord has given you this land. After she's told them, I don't know, I don't know where they went, I don't know, who am I? I don't know. What does she say to the Israelite spies? I know, I know the Lord has given you this land. Immediately, the female Canaanite prostitute, in her first breath, She's a foreigner. She's a woman from a people group whose reputation is absolutely horrific and who is living a very questionable lifestyle. She professes in faith that she knows what God is going to do. This entire book, she spends the next four verses testifying to what the God in heaven and on the earth below has done. This entire book is about God fulfilling his promise to give this land to Israel. And here is this woman who is the least likely to profess about God being faithful. Here she is saying, I know what's happening. I know who God is. 
the very phrase that Rahab uses there in verse 11, God of heaven and on earth below, is only used three other times in the Old Testament, once in Exodus, twice in Deuteronomy. And it speaks to God's sovereignty and God's superiority over all others. Remember, we talked about how the Canaanite culture was polytheistic. Rahab had a plethora of gods from which to choose. And here she is speaking in a way that affirms that she knows that this God, our God, is the God of heaven and earth. This is a remarkable declaration of faith. And there is no other way to explain it other than to know that God has revealed himself to Rahab. He's clearly been at work in her heart, leaving her in a, in a position to see what was happening around her in Jericho and to emerge with a faith that left her changed. It altered her vision, a faith that in turn moved her to take action. So we pick back up with her in verse 12. She's speaking to the Israelite spies, and she says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord's that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Because she has faith in God and in the Lord's plan, Rahab speaks bravely to the Israelites. She fights here, she fights not only for her own survival, but for the survival of those she loved. She asks for the Israelites to deal kindly with her family, and the word she uses is hesed, which was often used to describe the loyalty and compassion that was expected in a covenant relationship between God and people. Scholars even have agreement that the wording and the method by which Rahab made this request is faith-filled. She's essentially, she's saying, give me an oath in Yahweh's name. 
I believe he is who he says he is. Swear to me in his name. Her faith in the Lord is so great here that she recognizes the work of God all around her. And I, I've, I've got a little bit of conjecture here for you, so I just know that like this is not scholarly evidence, but I just think it's a very cool thing that the cord that Rahab drops out of her window is crimson. And it's that cord dropped out of the window that serves as a sign to the Israelites as they come to annihilate Jericho, that this house is to be protected. And if we remember during Passover, what did the Israelites paint over their doors? A smear of red. Just a cool connection. So, just as the people of God's homes are passed over in the Passover, so will Rahab's be, and we have to turn to Joshua chapter 6 to see what indeed happened when the Israelites invaded Jericho. Joshua 6 says, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her, they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So Rahab and her family were spared. The typical war code of the day would have dictated that, the, that every single Canaanite would have been destroyed. But because of Rahab, God recognizes that there is a faithful remnant. She too should have been condemned, but she was saved. A sinful, Gentile, female prostitute was saved. We get this glimpse into this story that God is writing that he is not simply for his chosen people. God is at work for all people. Rahab went from living a life that was hopeless, that was broken, to all of a sudden a life that was full of a different story. As we end that, that, that section, and it tells us that she lives among the Israelites to this day. You see, Rahab chose not to accept who people told her that she was. She wasn't content any longer with her culture defining her future. She instead chose to accept who God said she was. And who is she? Just who is she going to be? If you move forward to the New Testament, if you flip over to Matthew 1 quickly, move to the New Covenant, and we find this, 
Matthew 1, 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was, who was she? Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And that's right, our Rahab, who was called over and over and over again by a label that she thought defined her. We find her in Matthew 1, in the lineage of Jesus, as the great, 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 and about 38 more greats, grandmother of Jesus himself. Rahab's faith qualified her to be in the family of Jesus. God said, you may feel unqualified. You may be living under a label of prostitute, of Canaanite, but I see you as a critical member of my family. She benefits from the covenant God gave to Abraham in Genesis 3, even though she is not an Israelite. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Author Liz Curtis Higgs says it this way, This is how God works, beloved. Revealing his truth to those whose hearts are open. Who doing his mighty deeds through his people, showing his hand when necessary. If we have ears to hear, his voice is easily heard. If we have eyes to see, we see him everywhere. And boy, did Rahab ever see. God said Rahab is qualified because of her faith. I think Rahab's story reminds us all that our past does not limit God's ability to work in and through us. Rahab's story reminds us that there is only one label that God applies to us, and that is beloved. For those of us who have been in the church a long time, and I think the Israelites needed this reminder too, I want to suggest that Rahab's story reminds us that we don't get to choose who sits at the table of God's family. The table of the family of God is longer and wider than we can imagine. And we need to look no further than Hebrews 11 to realize that. Our justification comes through faith. Rahab and so many others listed in our Hall of Faith heroes were not there because they lived perfect lives or because they were from the right family or because they did some incredible thing. They were there because they chose to believe. Despite the odds, despite what the, what the world told her she was, Rahab chose faith. She chose to believe that the God of heaven and earth could do more with her life than what was in front of her. And because of Jesus, that's a choice you get today, too. Romans 8 tells us that we are all children of God 
And if we are children of God, we are heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ. And when Jesus died on that cross, he took those labels with him. When you are in Christ, you are qualified by faith, period. So I wonder what label you walked in with today. Is it failure? Is it fired? Is it discouraged? Is it full of shame? Is it not good enough? Is it victim? Maybe it's overwhelmed. Maybe it's guilty. Maybe it's lonely. I hope you know that you get a moment just like Rahab. You get a moment to choose who God says you are instead of who the world says you are. Because Romans 8.1 tells us there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.39 says you can never be separated from God's love. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creation in Christ. And Ephesians 1.11 says you were chosen by the same God who took this woman from a broken, dark place and called her his own. You have been forgiven this morning. You are redeemed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us today. God, we thank you that you remind us that, Lord, you have used imperfect people in extraordinary ways. God, and, and we just surrender whatever it is today that stands between us and you. Lord, help us to shed the things that, that we think are disqualifying us from being in your family, from being a part of your story, God, because none of those things are from you. Lord, would you remind us just how loved we are. God, I thank you for the story of Rahab and the beautiful redemption that you worked out in her life. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Lord, out in the world, God, that we wouldn't see people by labels, God, but that we would see them by belovedness. God, and that you, there's nobody, God, there's nobody out there whom you do not love. So, Father, I pray that that would fall afresh on us today. God, and we are thankful that we can sit here and to know this, with a shadow of a doubt, God, because of Jesus and because of the finished work of the cross. Father, we thank you for meeting with us today. We love you.